1: welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just talked uh, for about an hour with Io Wahlberg, who joined me from Copenhagen, about a book that he recently co-edited with co-editors Laurence Monet and C. Michelle Thompson. This book is Southern Medicine for Southern People, Vietnamese Medicine in the Making. Now, this was a really wonderful opportunity to talk about not just um, the content of the book, which is a wonderfully coherent introduction to um, and really synthesis of work on medicine in Vietnam and Vietnamese medicine. It's just a a particularly um, well-edited and and, uh, sort of well-formulated edited volume. Um, But it was also an opportunity to talk about the process of putting together, both from its initial conception to its final stages, a volume like this. Um, And uh, we had a great time talking. There's some wonderful, wonderful material in the book, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, Ayo.
0: Hi, Carla. (laughs)
1: We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Aya Wahlberg about a volume he recently co-edited and contributed to, and that's a volume called Southern Medicine for Southern People, Vietnamese Medicine in the Making. That came out with Cambridge Scholars Publishing just this year in 2012. Now, this is, um, as we'll talk about in the course of our discussion, which is particularly exciting for me because we don't often have the chance to talk about edited volumes, which is a really important part of... Um, of this field, and which is, you know, a a very different kind of process, I think, really interestingly, um, than a monograph. And one of the particular things about this monograph that's so exciting, um, well, there are a few things. Not only does it give a really rich, and I think, at least in my experience, unprecedentedly rich account of Vietnamese medicine and medicine in Vietnam, and it's really kind of trans-temporal in a really beautiful way, but it's also, at the same time, both incredibly focused, right? There's a, there's a real coherence um, without being repetitive in the course of the pieces. But at the same time, it's very, very interdisciplinary, um, which is, I think, um, a very difficult balance to strike. And this book does it exceptionally well. So thank you, um, Io, for talking with us. And thank you for the volume.
0: And thank you for that very kind introduction.
1: <laughs> oh, it's very honest. Um, this, is, this is really, truly, truly a pleasure. Um, and as somebody um, who who is interested in the history of um, medicine in East Asia, Southeast Asia, um, you know, in general, this was a, a real treat um, to learn about this.
0: Well, you know, actually, that that exact point that uh, you, you finished with there, um, the history of medicine in East Asia slash Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. I think that's perhaps a nice place to start when we, we talk about this book, because in fact… Um, the book uh, the, it was born out of uh, the first meeting of uh, a network which was established as recently as 2006, um, uh, which goes by the name of History of Medicine in Southeast Asia. That one of the co-editors, uh, Laurence Monet and uh, Hal Cook, um, were kind of instrumental in establishing. And the the fact that it it only emerged in 2006, I think, says something that there is this newfound interest and um, uh, you know in Apart from our book, in recent years we've had uh, Cambodians and their doctors by Ingrid Trankel and Jan Overson. Uh, coming up soon is Global Movements, Local Concerns, Medicine and Health in Southeast Asia, which uh, Laurence Monet, one of my co-editors with uh, Michelle Thompson um, uh, and uh, Hal Cook, uh, sorry, Laurence Monet and Hal Cook are editing um, a volume on medicine in Southeast Asia. So this new focus I guess in some ways is a, a kind of coming out of the shadow of East Asia when it comes to medicine and Uh, And of course, that's a theme which runs through the the entire um, uh, edited volume, this idea of somehow uh, carving out a niche uh, from from the shadow of of China, which obviously plays such an important role in the history of of medicine in in, uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I mean, I was really struck um, by the recent, you know, by the fact that you do mention that this was um, really as recent as 2006, right, that this project yeah. started. And one of the things I think we'll, um, I hope, I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the discussion is that there really is an emphasis on the fact that, you know, taking a, um, a cue from what you just um, told us, medicine in Vietnam and or Vietnamese medicine, right, and these, these aren't necessarily the same things, has nope. has typically been defined at, in opposition to Something else, right? This sort exactly. of in relation to China, or in relation to France, or in relation to Western medicine, or so on and so forth. So it's um, it's actually it's quite nice to see that come out so explicitly as a theme here, and at the same time, in a volume that focuses so much and gives such a rich picture of this particular case. So
0: yeah yeah and and i you know i would definitely agree with you in the sense that that this is in some ways this is a very much a kind of a pioneering um uh, volume because let's say from a social science perspective um uh, at least in the english language uh, um scholarly literature there has not been very much focus on vietnamese medicine and other southeast asian medical traditions uh, as such if you were to compare that to the focus that has been on Korean medicine, or Chinese medicine, or or Japanese medicine. Um, so we're very proud of it on on uh, on, on that kind of uh, point. And but. At the same time, we should say that there is a very rich literature on these issues of uh, herbal medicine and traditional medicine in Vietnam, within Vietnam, by uh, the doctors and uh, chemists and scholars who've been involved. So it's not to say that we're the first to write about this. There there have been plenty to to write about it. But we we had this particular interest as social scientists to try and account for the kind of historical, political, social and cultural conditions under which something which has come to be known as Vietnam. Vietnamese medicine could, could emerge, and that's really where the subtitle comes, Vietnamese medicine in the making. Um, so we're very excited by, uh, by being able to contribute to, to, uh, to an otherwise uh, very broad field of, of traditional medicine um, in, in all kinds of countries, not just East Asia, but also Africa and Latin America and so forth.
1: Right. Well, at the same time, I think the title does a really nice um, job, Vietnamese medicine in the making, of emphasizing that this is very much a process. Right. This isn't a static kind of concept, and, the, and even the idea of tradition here, as it plays out in these papers, is very much um, con- constructed. And I don't mean merely constructed, right? But very much sort of an. It, this medicine is an active process, and not just a static thing that we can point to.
0: Def- definitely, and I, I guess in some ways that 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 would be the the kind of message of the book, which which we hope then can can perhaps play into discussions about you know once again, Chinese medicine or Korean medicine or, or medicine in other countries, that, that this idea of making is, is very analytically helpful. It it really allows us to somehow look past a lot of the polemics that that quite often surround uh, discussions about traditional medicine for, for all the reasons that most people who at least are interested in these things will know, uh, you know, uh, kind of conflicts between modern and uh, traditional medicines and ideas about what uh, evidence is and, and so forth, that... By focusing on making, we are asking an empirical question and uh, and a historical question. That 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 exactly as you point out, this is a process, and it's something that you can, if you would, you know, take the time, you can observe, you can you can uh, document, you can account for, and really learn a lot from from that documenting process itself. And I think all of us as as authors and contributors, editors, we we definitely felt we learned along the way um, as a result.
1: Thank you. So Ayo, could you kind of tell us a little bit about your own background and your own research focus and what brought you to the study of Vietnamese medicine um, in particular?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, um, I would, this book is really a culmination and, and probably, uh, you know, I'm a, a postdoctoral research fellow currently at the Department of Anthropology, so I still consider myself a, a junior a scholar. Um, and this is definitely the the, the piece of uh, work or the the volume or or uh, product, however we put put these things, that I'm I'm kind of most proud of and and most excited about, in the sense that it's it's a culmination. Um, it's really been two journeys for me. Um, my my introduction to Vietnam came in the 1990s while I was uh, working as... uh, um, I was doing my master's degree in development studies and working as an intern for a United Nations uh, information unit in Copenhagen. Um, I was studying at the Roskilde University and one of the uh, uh, semesters was a kind of voluntary internship that you could kind of organize yourself and for various reasons, I um, was able to uh, organize and was um, able to spend time at the Institute of Chemistry in Hanoi in uh, 19, well, pretty much from the ni- 1997 onwards on, on various occasions. So it was a little bit by chance, but uh, that first kind of visit to Vietnam in 1997 turned into, uh, well, definitely a kind of a personal love affair with the country. I, I really felt for, for Vietnam and uh, uh, enjoyed uh, visiting there and just met the most fabulous, fantastic people that I then talk about in in the chapter that uh, that I contribute to this uh, volume, so we can talk about that later so that that was my kind of introduction to to uh, to vietnam was was through an internship which then turned turned into a, a kind of research uh, uh, commitment and, and project, which I've been working on for the last decade or so, I guess. Um, time really flies. <laughs> and the, the other journey uh, then, uh, if, if I think about this book, is has been a, an academic one. So uh, I, I, uh, my PhD was, uh, as a result of this internship, I decided to do a PhD on uh, the modernization of uh, herbal medicine. Um, I um, was fortunate enough to, 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 to get to train uh, at the London School of Economics Department of Sociology, where very early on it was suggested that I approach this as a comparative um, um, project. And I chose actually to... Uh, my, my, my dissertation uh, is entitled Modernization and Its Side Effects... Um, the revival and renaissance of herbal medicine in Vietnam and the United Kingdom mm. so i compared the revivals of herbal medicine in two very different countries which happened to be quite contemporaneous so from the 1950s 60s onwards there was a revival in both countries but as i then show in the in the dissertation for very very different uh, reasons and during this uh, training i was uh, very fortunate to um, at the international society for the history of east asian sciences Technology, te- Science, Technology and Medicine. I think it's ISH-TIM <laughs> for short. <laughs> Their kind of triennial conference was organized by Professor Paul Unschuld um, in August 2005. It was a fantastic occasion. And this was, I was a, a PhD student, one of my first kind of larger uh, conferences. And I was Fortunate there to meet um, uh, my co-editors, so uh, Professor Michelle Thompson and uh, Professor Laurence Monet. Michelle is at uh, um, in Southern Connecticut, and uh, Laurence is in Montreal, and they were both there. And uh, since then, we have been collaborating. And it's very rare, I think, that you you meet people that you. I mean, on one thing is that you know you meet fantastic friends, but another thing is to. Be working on such a, a kind of a niche area in some ways from a social science perspective, which is Vietnamese medicine, but sharing a kind of approach. We both had, or sorry, all three of us had the same. I, I, I would call it sensibility to how we should be trying to understand these things, and I think that's quite rare. And then on top of all that, um, we had a chronological match, which was just paradise. I mean, uh, uh, Michelle had had had, and is is has and continues to do work on the kind of uh, pre-colonial to colonial history of medicine. And when I say pre-colonial, I'm I'm talking about the French colonial period because there was also um, um, a period where where China was was, uh, ruling parts of Vietnam. Um, But uh, so Michel had worked on kind of pre-colonial history of medicine in uh, uh, Vietnam. Um, Laurence is a a very accomplished a scholar on colonial history of medicine in Vietnam, and then myself, who had been, who had started this project on a kind of, let's say, post colonial modernization of uh, herbal medicine. So, I mean, come on, w- what, a, what, a, <laughs> what a fit. Um, and, you know, we've been collaborating since, and, and this book really is that, you know, the collaboration of that kind of six, seven year process that's been
1: there. That sounds ideal and really, really rare. Very <laughs> rare. Just, I mean, wow. how lucky can you be? <laughs> I, I can't, Yeah. I mean, I, I can only dream um of of yes. um of that one. I think all of us can. So it sounds like this was a really um sort of generative, very positive process of editing this volume. Can you talk a little bit about um uh, the genesis of this volume? Sort of how? So now that you had you know your three core editors, how did you go about? Um, finding the papers and finding, deciding the kind of contributions that you wanted in the volume.
0: Yeah, um, so this turned out to be uh, a challenge um, <laughs> for for many reasons, because we had this social science. Uh, initially, we were thinking this this would be a social science volume, so kind of historians, sociologists, and anthropologists kind of thing. Um, and I should say that um, our very dear and uh, wonderful colleague, Annick Gunnell from CNRS in Paris, um, uh, she was uh, part of the, the kind of journey from the beginning, and uh, she, she has done fantastic work uh, on the uh, kind of early 20th century history of uh, uh, medicine in, and has m- many other ongoing projects on kind of uh, uh, medicine in, in Vietnam in the 20th century. Um, so she was very much a part of it as a historian from the beginning, you know, helping us to, to brainstorm and, and think, think about uh, you know, who we could invite. Um and as we kind of mentioned, I think, somewhere in the introduction that that at this stage we're we're talking six, seven years ago, there were certainly studies about uh medicine in Vietnam from a social science perspective emerging. There were kind of ethnographies of of medi- how medicines are used, uh, uh not least traditional medicines. Um, um there were um definitely kind of public health uh, oriented literature on on issues of health so there was definitely literature out there but um, as i mentioned earlier this idea of of trying to understand how uh, vietnamese medicine as a national medicine could emerge under which circumstances there weren't weren't that many scholars out there so we decided very early on to become interdisciplinary and to try to get into touch with people who somehow um, in our imaginings of this idea of a making we saw as, as kind of playing a role um, in this making. So we have wonderful contributions from uh, medical doctors. Uh, uh, Professor Huang Bo Chau is one of the uh, – has, has himself participated in the kind of revival of traditional medicine in Vietnam. Uh, he very kindly agreed to, to – um, Contribute. Uh, We had contributions from historians who weren't necessarily working on traditional medicine as such, like uh, Sean uh, Malarney, but who um, still um, were interested in in this idea of a a medical process as something that was ongoing in in, in his case, uh, the 20th century, and uh, in connection with the revolution. Um, So, you know, we decided to to, uh, just reach out to our networks and our contacts and kind of explain to people our, our, our with enthusiasm our idea and, and gradually got more and more people. And we ended up getting, you know, where everything from psychiatrists to medical doctors to sociologists, anthropologists, historians... I Think that's kind of the the, the <laughs> repeat. Uh, so it, um, it was really reaching out to our, our networks and uh, and uh, you know mobilizing people. And you know ha- very happily we found out that people um, were, were kind of keen to to, to get on board. And um, so it was a snowball kind of effect, I would say.
1: <laughs> now one of the. Exactly the um, one of the wonderful things about the volume that you just mentioned this really wonderful interdisciplinarity must also present particularly um, intense challenges for an editor of this volume, right? Because you've got um, comp- you've got contributions here that really span fields, and not just span social sciences fields, but also, as you mentioned, there are contributions from medical doctors and scientists, and who are all writing in very different kind of um, vernaculars, so how yes. did what was that process like as an editor to, to try to um, do I think something that works as I said really well here, which is maintain a kind of coherence um, across really vastly different disciplines
0: yeah um, I, I, very early on we decided that that um, we we can 't do this. I mean, th- thank God for for the internet and email and everything. But as editors, we just can't do this. I mean, we're 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 literally in three different countries as as kind of core editors for the volume, but we just can't do this as a as just you know a, you know email exchange uh, across continents. That we're, we're going to have to just try to make the time to meet up. Um, and uh, we kind of used conferences that we we were all interested in attending as good occasions. But also, we're very fortunate to get funding from various. Uh, grants uh, to actually meet for editorial meetings. And uh, we met in Montreal. We met in Con- Connecticut. We met in uh, Vancouver, actually.
1: Oh, um, yay. Yes.
0: <laughs> for the, I think it was the history of science combined with the forest, the social studies mm-hmm. of uh, science society um, meeting of 2007, maybe something like that. But in any case, we, we very early on, we were clear we we need to meet because it's not just, you know, the normal peer review process of commenting and and, and ensuring that people get feedback and uh, carry out their revisions and so forth that, that, you know, that's all online these days anyway, but it was really to do that, you know, talk about these things. Um, uh, And we know we, we, we would talk about every paper as they came in and the de- the volume took you know kind of 6 years to to come into being and part of that was that we we spent a lot of time with each of the contributors uh, not because they were sending us uh, you know bad material but just as you pointed out we had to try to uh, to create a kind of a common uh, at least flow to the the book, so that there was somehow there was a there was a, a kind of a, a link to each chapter. Even though we allowed space for for each of the authors to, of course, um, you know, to to come up with the findings and the conclusions that they they felt were warranted. But still, we we wanted to have. The, to ensure that every chapter somehow gave us a piece of this puzzle of a kind of process of a, a form of medicine, a national medicine, and I hope we can talk about that in a bit, a national medicine um, specifically, how that came about. And I, I – well, I hope we succeeded, and I do believe that we did. And that was really, uh, you know, back and forth with the authors and sending our comments, and our our, our contributors were just wonderful in, in kind of uh, – um, embracing this this project and i really think we were all on on board um uh, from very early on but it was a long process and and i think um uh you know in this day of you know publish 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 you're kind of feeling that you should rush these things but we we didn't want to rush this we really wanted to to make this uh a a really nice contribution and and we we hope and think 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 we that we did.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think you did. <laughs> and, you know, as you mentioned it, we can, let's talk about nationalism and national medicine right now. Um, yes. There are, I mean, this is one of the great things about having a conversation about this kind of volume is that I think there are a lot of, you know, what's, um, I think, interesting for us to talk about is going to be these sort of major organizing threads that come yeah. up um, really nicely for listeners who haven't had a chance yet, and I hope you will, Um, listeners out there to read the book there's a really nice synthetic introduction and a conclusion and these aren't just the kinds of um edited volume intros and conclusions that go you know this is what this piece is about and this is what this piece is about they really do um try to pull out and and focus on and organize um the discussion around synthetic themes that then bring in the in the you know mentions of the individual contributions as they fit so so one of those themes um That organizes the book is this idea of national medicine and the question of what a national medicine is. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. So what, how how is this um, important in your view for what, um, what this volume is doing and for understanding Vietnamese medicine?
0: Yeah, I think the, the best way, you know, and I, I do this all the time with my students and, and just anybody who kind of uh, will let me talk about the book, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask them the question, how, co- how come we don't hear about Danish medicine? That's how right. How, how come we don't hear about Canadian medicine, you know? And uh, and there's kind of a point to that. Um, uh, and, you know, that's really the curiosity that that re- really to this day is, is driving me is that, you know, in certain circumstances under certain conditions a medicine can become national and obviously Vietnam is not the only country we've already mentioned Chinese medicine, uh, Korean medicine, uh, Japanese medicine and so forth. There are other places where there's a a national medicine and in fact uh, there's one thing that, that I find quite curious that the, the World Health Organization often um, highlights a kind of trio of nations when it comes to what they call having the most integrative uh, medical systems. When you think about the place that traditional medicine has in uh, health delivery, health or, or medical delivery, uh, medical research, and medical training. And they always kind of point to China, South Korea, uh, also North Korea sometimes, uh, and Vietnam. So China, Korea, Vietnam are, are very often highlighted as having the most integrative medical systems. But another thing links them, and that is exactly that in each of these countries, for various reasons, the medicines have become uh, – traditional medicines have become national. So uh, Vietnamese medicine, Vietnam, uh, or in Korean medicine, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of work by people like hyo J Cho and – Yoon jung Ma, I hope I'm pronouncing them right, mm-hmm. in Korea, and Kim Taylor, Sean Lei uh, and, and many others in, in the Chinese context. Um, but there is a particularity for Vietnam, and that is that uh, both in China and in Korea, you've seen some kind of a public standoff between you know, so-called traditional and so-called modern medicine, um, whether it's a struggle to officially abolish traditional medicine as we saw in early 20th century China or the kind of famous standoff between pharmacists and herbalists in in, in late 20th century um, South Korea. There's been some kind of a public standoff and tensions. There are certainly tensions in Vietnam. There, we should not romanticize in, in that sense. There are tensions, but you haven't seen a public standoff in uh, In uh, Vietnam, when it comes to this relationship to traditional and modern medicine, Um, and uh, one of the things we explore in the book is, is, you know, uh, especially those chapters. And it must be said that most chapters do kind of focus on uh, twentieth-century history of medicine rather than um, uh, before that. Um, um, But one of the things that uh, that we see uh, is that. Time and again, you'll you'll hear people, and I, to this day, when I speak with people that I I meet in Vietnam and tell them, I'm, and or would tell them that I'm in in town to kind of uh, work on these kinds of issues, everyone would quote this famous uh, uh, sentence from uh, uh, Uncle Ho, from Ho, Ho Chi Minh, that that we must combine Eastern and Western medicine. So we kind of came to think of it almost as a, a kind of a doctrine of combination, which is quite unique to um, Vietnam, not because, uh, I mean, uh, Chairman Mao has similar statements where one should combine the old and the new, but still the the distinctions, there there is some kind of a a superior, inferior relationship very often kind of embedded in in not every position, but in many of the positions one can see in, in other countries. Whereas in Vietnam, from the beginning, there was this very not defensive, like an offensive strategy to say that that traditional medicine, our traditions must be um, uh, treated uh, uh, on an equal level um, and must be integrated. We must make use of them. Um, and there are all kinds of uh, explanations um, that that need to be brought into the mix if we're really to understand that kind of lack of a public standoff between modern and traditional medicine. And one of those puzzle pieces is this very, very close link, and Michelle Thompson has done wonderful work really showing us the links between the anti-colonial uh, nationalist movements in the early 20th century, and not just traditional medicine, but actually Vietnamese who were trained in modern medicine, who came to be quite disillusioned and, and uh, dissatisfied with the fact that their medical traditions were not being uh, taught in uh, curricula at, at the Hanoi Medical School, for example. So there's a very close link between uh, Ho Chi Minh, the people around him, and uh, medical training. Uh, and I think this is one of the kind of pieces of the puzzle that ensured that traditional medicine, and when I say traditional medicine, um, it's not because I, I kind of analytically accept this phrase, but it's a kind of accepted way to kind of lump together specifically herbal medicine. That's really the cornerstone of what Vietnamese medicine is considered to be, but also um, elements of, uh, of Chinese medicine, acupuncture, um, certain massage techniques, but herbal medicine really is the cornerstone of Vietnamese medicine. So that link between the anti-colonial nationalist movement and you know, kind of stories of, of of using traditional medicine in the jungles during fighting, both French soldiers and later on American soldiers. That place that traditional medicine has been had has had as as a respected, um, not last resort, but actually a, a, a well, in some senses it was a last resort because very often that would be uh, flagged as as a way to to overcome shortages of modern medical supplies. But still, you would get a sense that there, there was a pride here that, um, you know, we, we are reclaiming something here, that something that's been in some senses denigrated, um, by a colonial past that's been kind of dissed, (laughs) to use a a modern word, um, uh, by um, colonial policies and uh, practices under the French colonial rule. Um, Really this idea that we're going to reclaim this. This is ours. We believe in this. And you you see those in many of the quotes in the book, that there's this very kind of offensive strategy that we will not accept anyone who denigrates our medical uh, practices and traditions, Um, at least those which we consider to be, and when I say we, I'm, I'm thinking of the kind of official uh, Vietnamese government strategy to revive uh, traditional medicine, that at least those, uh, and again, herbal medicine plays a prominent role, those that we um, consider to be um, um, uh, of value. Um, we, we simply won't accept anyone telling us that th- this is not good enough. Um, and that's quite unique, I think, that that really offensive strategy to get out there to to say that our medicine is just as good as Western medicine. Um, I think that's quite unique. I, I, I haven't really bumped into it in, in that s- same kind of, uh, let's say, volume as, as, as I have in Vietnamese context. Sure.
1: And for listeners who may not uh, be aware of this, I think the choice of um, language that you're using, we and our medicine, this speaks very specifically to a way of naming Vietnamese medicine, right? And this is something that comes up. Um, In the introduction, that you you talk about you you and the you and your co-editors talk about um, the different ways of calling Vietnamese medicine, and one of these ways is translated explicitly as "our medicine."
0: yeah right. exactly talk tides it 's really an it 's an interpolation and and we need to to when we listen to that we need to hear the the kind of weight of history behind that that kind of in uh, interpolation and that kind of naming of, of Vietnamese medicine yeah and you 're spot on, and I think you know on the, the the back cover, we kind of write that the compass points uh, north south east west saturate every chapter because the, and you pointed out a bit earlier that the Vietnamese medicine was consistently defining itself um, against that which what it was not. So it was southern medicine as opposed to northern medicine. And later on, when the colonial um, kind of medicalization processes kicked in, it became eastern medicine rather than western medicine. And that that some people might choose to see that as a kind of defensive position, but we really came to see this as, uh, you know, I, I would... Prefer to call it an offensive uh, kind of uh, strategy that, uh, reclaiming a kind of uh, very clear demarcation, and you know, it's it. The message is clear: don't 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 mess with with this kind of uh, this. And, and you know, uh, hats off. You know, uh, you you look at uh, you know uh, the 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 status of um, uh, the, the kind of standard health uh, measurements of population health in Vietnam. Vietnam has always been praised for being. Uh, um, compared to its kind of GNP per capita, it's always had very high health indicators and kind of been uh, pointed out as as having a very proactive and and successful kind of public health uh, um, uh, yeah, campaign and, and strategy.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's actually really interesting, or one of the many things that's interesting about how you're talking about this, is the um, sort of the language of reclaiming and an offensive gesture. You also use the language of traditional, and you said you know you 're using this very deliberately. Um, one of the really nice things the volume does is make the point that just as our medicine as a term, sort of as a descriptor, comes into play as a kind of, as you say, a sort of reclaiming gesture, an offensive gesture. Also, um, the terms of traditional and scientific also come into play, and this is starting in the 1930s, right, I think, as an explicit gesture, right, as an explicit means of making. So can you talk about that? Because this um, relationship between and deployment of the language of tradition and science or scientization, is another one of the key themes that you and your co-editors identify as being central to the volume.
0: Definitely. Um, So uh, I think this, you know, um, Laurence uh, uh, Monet, one of of our co-editors and her contribution specifically in this volume and her work in general, which I I really admire, um, you know, let, let's be clear that before I before I kind of come to my point, everyone knows that uh, colonial policies, when it comes to um, uh, the medical traditions that were were kind of uh, commonplace in Vietnam when when the French arrived they they, they were in no way supportive of, of those uh, practices and traditions they were dismissive there was a very kind of arrogant uh, you know the classic ideas that this is sorcery it's uh, it's quackery uh, you know we, we are here to enlighten we are here to teach that, that you know that, that that's let's be one hundred percent clear but at the same time what what uh, Laurence does very nicely in this volume is is to show us that we can can 't accept this idea of a complete rejection um, of these practices um, uh, at face value. Uh, the rhetoric is certainly there and and a lot of practices are certainly discouraging and uh, in some ways there has been a systematic effort to kind of push um, these practices to the side but pragmatics kind of come into the picture. And she shows very nicely how there were certainly some uh, colonial um, uh, people working within the co- colonial uh, kind of administration, health administration, who ended up having quite a, a, a positive view of these uh, medicines. And one of her points is that this is the time in which medicine becomes traditional. It gains the signifier because – not because uh, – um, uh, it's never been there before, but because science comes into the mix. So we need to have something which which um, uh, uh, signifies something which is not our medicine. And our medicine is clearly modern. So what's the opposite of modern? Kind of what's the opposite of north, that's south? Well, the opposite of modern is traditional. So in a, in a kind of um, ironic or let's say uh, funny way that naming of traditional medicine kind of institutionalizes it and creates the conditions for a scientific process to start studying the chemical uh, kind of uh, constituents of plants to to create lists of of uh, of those um um, medical species, which might be useful when, when you can't get access to all those uh, modern medical supplies because of the, the exigencies of colonial um, administration, rural areas especially. Um, the, the naming of a medicine as, as traditional was was not just denigrated, it, it was actually carving out a space. It was opening up a platform. And we need to keep our eyes on those continuities. Certainly, there was a break. If we compare uh, Ho Chi Minh's government's policies to traditional medicine, they were radically different from the colonial uh, health authorities' policies towards traditional medicine. But there are continuities. And these are the, the subtle things that I think the volume helps to kind of explore, is that we, 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 we of course, uh, um, kind of uh, for sure, accept uh, then we can see this this uh, contrast between west and east, but at the same time, there are also these these uh, fissures, these, these continuities which which uh, link the two together, so tradition was as opposed to modern um, and then ironically it kind of op- carves out a space for these uh, traditions to be researched and to be systematized and and that's then what characterizes the 20th century is this very systematic and uh, and uh, um uh, yeah really comprehensive program to to map out on the one hand to to catalog which medical uh, plants are being used around the country and then on the other hand to modernize industrialize and not least commercialize, as, as one of the, the the pieces kind of quite nicely shows
1: and this actually is a, is a wonderful way to lead us into um, a discussion of your particular contribution to the volume which mm, is yes. um, which is all about um, on some level this um, sort of industrialization of herbal medicine and this engagement um, between sort of ideas of efficacy and local um, herbal medical cultures. Um, so your, um, your chapter, and it's chapter six for listeners Family Secrets and the Industrialization of Herbal Medicine in Post Colonial Vietnam. And this, this chapter opens with an extraordinarily um, interesting uh, vignette of this doctor, um, or um, is he a doctor?
0: Uh, he, he's had, um, an apprentice-trained herbalist, as we would say, a long, long yi. Um, uh, he's uh, trained by his uh, father in uh, traditional medicine, specifically herbal medicine. So um, he does have training, but it's the kind of apprentice training training that he's had.
1: And so this anecdote, it starts in the early uh, 1980s. And we follow him and you lead us um, with him on this journey that takes him throughout the length of Vietnam to look for local remedies for opium addiction. It's really, it's a really fascinating story. And can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners?
0: Yes, I can. And uh, I really have to say this, you know, this um, uh, Tran Quang Zan is, uh, as, as mentioned, he's a, a traditional practitioner trained by his father. And uh, really, it, if, if I was to think about, you know, people I've met in my life, one of the most inspiring people I've ever had the chance to kind of spend time with and, and talk to and, and see in action while I was doing my research at the Institute of Chemistry, um, he uh, he uh, and while I was doing my inter- internship at the Institute of Chemistry, the kind of work around uh, his remedy was was going on. So I, I really got a chance to, to meet a lot of the people um, in that first kind of uh, meeting. But uh, yeah, it's 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 a very long and complex short. Story, but just to kind of cook it down because readers can obviously go to the the volume. Um, he, um, um, for for personal re- reasons, in the early '80s, uh, decided that he would um, uh, find or look for a, a cure for drug addiction. He'd seen the, the the serious damage that that drug addiction, especially opium addiction, was uh, kind of wreaking uh, on on uh, people around him in in the south of Vietnam, um, and. Uh, trained as a uh, kind of medical practitioner, he decides. Well, what I'll do is I'll go and visit different uh, communes, uh, different uh, rural areas, and talk to traditional practitioners. Which is not something, um, you know, this has been quite a common thing. Uh, um, uh, this kind of ethno uh, metho- methodology, so eth- ethno pharmacology, um, idea that you, you you should benefit from the knowledge of of the way that uh, people have for for ages been using their their um, Flora and fauna for medical purposes. So uh, uh, many people have been doing this in Vietnam, um, uh, sponsored by the state. But he sponsors this himself. He travels from north, uh, sorry, from south to north, the length of Vietnam, through uh, uh, almost a decade, and spends time in these villages talking to them about how do you treat um, drug addiction and and uh, uh, um, one thing he kind of finds out is that most of these uh, remedies uh, that he's collecting uh, the recipes for have some amount of opium in it to kind of appease withdrawal symptoms, much like uh, the the methadone uh, system that is familiar in the West that you, you kind of try to bring people down rather than just uh, withdraw their, their, their dependency um, completely. So he wasn't satisfied with this. So after he'd 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 gotten all this experience in what kind of herbs uh, uh, and medical plants are being used. He then started reading, so reading anything he could both in Western and uh, Eastern literature about, uh, so I'm I'm thinking Chinese uh, medicine literature and Western medicine literature about addiction, and starts experimenting. And this is where it gets uh, quite inspiring. He decides that the only way he's going to crack, this not um, to use these horrible cliches is that he has to addict himself because right. he he needs to feel the the withdrawal to to get a sense of what 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 this is about. And for a period of about three years, he goes through successive withdrawals to test various uh, combinations, and eventually is convinced that he's found a very effective uh, treatment to specifically to get rid of the cravings, which many addicts speak as speak of as one of the kind of Major factors uh, behind relapse, for example, uh, once you've gone through a a withdrawal, that that you have this craving – and he was convinced that that uh, he he has this and he went to health authorities in his local Hatai, uh province um and uh, you know the story kind of takes off from there and I, I, that's where i kind of jump in in the in the um in the volume and then explain how he then collaborates with chemists at the institute of chemistry to improve the extraction processes and to create a pill basically it was a liquid that he he uh, Cooked at at home in some ways and brewed, but uh, it then became this uh, pill and the kind of challenges that they, they they experienced along the way. And the focus again was on collaboration. So you mm-hmm. had a, a chemist and a traditional practitioner who are very good friends, uh, Tran Van Sung, one of the best chemists in Vietnam, working side by side uh, and respecting completely the the viewpoints and uh, advice of of his colleague um, Tran Quang San. Really inspirational to to have a chance to see that, and um, once again, perhaps one of the, these particularities that that in Vietnam you don't have that uh, um, uh, that kind of public standoff between modern and, and so-called traditional medicine.
1: And this sort of this importance of collaboration really interestingly. Um, reflect something that um, occurs on multiple levels, both in this piece and throughout the volume. So not only are you emphasizing here, really interestingly, um, the importance of collaboration between herbalists and botanists and chemists um, and ecologists, but also you emphasize the point that both in this case, Um, he is insisting and his collaborators are insisting on what you call a multiple pot strategy, right? So rather than trying to kind of look at the efficacy of individual components um, of this remedy, and there are, what, 12, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, It's important to look at them together. And this also, I think, nicely speaks to the the um, overarching theme of pluralism um, in medical practice that really um, permeates the volume.
0: Definitely. So, so this, is the, the, this idea of a multiple pot is for anyone kind of mildly interested in the, the kind of technical jargon behind natural products. Um, one of the things that distinguishes herbal medicines from a pharmaceutical product is that herbal medicines contain extracts of plants – um and a pharmaceutical p- product has a single uh, chemical ingredient which has then been uh, mass produced and kind of you know cooked down into a pill so one plant can have thousands of um, uh, chemical ingredients so you haven't taken out uh, the, the you know one single one and then synthesized it and then mass produced it you 're kind of sticking to the fact that um, that uh, that we need all the 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 ingredients in this plant so we will yes we will modernize the production process, but we will stay faithful to the full plant extract and Here we have not just a single plant which can be complex enough we have twelve plants um, and uh, to standardize 12, as I learned um, uh, in my time in the laboratories, both in, in uh, Hanoi but also in uh, in uh, Germany, where they collaborate with the uh, uh, Institute of Plant Biochemistry in, in uh, Halle in Germany, that, you know, to standardize something that has 12... Um, plants in it is, is a monstrous uh, challenge um, because of the complexity. So like one of uh, my informants, uh, a scientist, put it that, you know, you speak of kind of looking for a fingerprint to, to kind of uh, confirm that a certain, um, uh, a certain plant is part of an extract. So you should be able to see through chromatography a certain fingerprint but then he said well imagine having a thousand fingerprints jammed on top of each other and trying to kind of figure out which fingers are are present in this mosaic um but they are they are developing i mean using all kinds of uh, uh spectometry and, and um uh, uh, new newer kind of modern uh chromatography method they are Developing ways to to, to standardize um, uh, in some kind of consistent way, but it's fraught with challenge. Um, and the collaboration um, uh, from day one um, was was very uh, mutual. And the sense that you know we must accommodate uh, Tran Quang Zan's thinking behind his medicine in the way that we kind of uh, reduce this to a pill, uh, if, if to, to put it in in one way. So, and that yeah, you're right. Pluralism is is definitely. Um, um, a kind of something that characterizes the making of Viet- Vietnamese medicine, because, you know, by now, North, South, East, West, it's all there and it's being used by everyone on a daily basis. And, you know, anthropologists have for a long time, uh, shown us how, um, patients in whatever country are rarely faithful to any certain ideology of, of health. They'll shop around, they'll, they'll kind of go after. And, um, uh, Melissa Pashigian's uh, chapter in the volume where she talks about infertility, um, uh, that kind of uh, roots of infertility treatment um, uh, in uh, uh, Hanoi kind of shows this really nicely that that people will try northern medicine southern medicine eastern medicine until and the way she puts it until they find suitable medicine something that suits their their particular needs and their bodies and their frames of mind um, so pluralism is is part of that making process to accommodate various approaches to um, and and trying to get those approaches into Conversation and certainly there are tensions. I mean, let's uh, let's be clear. There 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 will always be tensions between, in some ways, competing uh, competing uh, therapies, um, because we we speak of a kind of a medical marketplace uh, as one of the components of this pluralism. That you can buy herbal products, but you can also buy antibiotics and. You know, people are competing for customers, so there's a there is a, there is tension there. It's not too again, not to romanticize, and that's really one of the things that I'm I'm you know trying to drill home in my chapter is that we shouldn't you know invoking a kind of neo Weberian uh, rational West versus a mystical East is just not going to do us any analytical favors. We're not going to understand what's what's happening.
1: Right, and you, I mean, one of the ways that you do this in this chapter, and and I think this is um a kind of theme that also uh weaves out through the rest of the volume but it's really nicely um articulated here is you show us in this particular case study of hiantos right the, which is yes. the name of this drug you show us the ways in which standardization and sort of explanations of efficacy become really crucial to the process by which this drug or this um collect this collection of Um, ingredients in this one sort of compound drug um, is actually industrialized and is is produced. And what's really interesting about that, and I would love to hear, um, for our listeners to hear a little bit more about how your ethnographic practice in in these um, laboratories actually helped you understand that, because this is very much um, about not just, you know, when we talk about pluralism and sort of collaboration, as you mentioned, The danger is to paint a very romanticized, rosy view of everybody's happy, everything's together. But this is very much about power um, as well. And mentioning fingerprints is very telling because one of the things historians of, of science and historians of identification have shown is that sort of what you get from fingerprinting people is you get a way not just of identifying them, but of classifying them in a system and controlling them. Um, so, can you speak to some of these issues and also um, with this, the ways that your ethnographic work actually helped you understand this?
0: Yeah. So, here, spot on. I really like this question. So, um, here, you know. On the one hand, I, I, I refuse to be the romantic because I, I don't think that's going to get us. I mean, on personal levels, we're, we're perhaps all romantics to some extent and should be. Um, but I'm, I'm speaking from, let's say, an analytical perspective. The romanticism is not going to help us understand what's going in my lab, or that's what I found. But on the other hand, I refuse then to go into the other um, um, kind of uh, – other extreme, which I, I – I kind of call the the biocolonization hypothesis. So the idea that, oh, now that uh, Tran Quang Zan decided he's going to collaborate with the chemists, oh, he's just being colonized. He's being subsumed. He's being forced into these categories of a modern West. He has to account for the chemical constituents and components um, in his uh, concoction. He has to submit it to randomized clinical trials. All these things are happening in Vietnam. But I I don't think the colonization hypothesis helps me when I'm in the lab account for the way that I saw them uh, working together and collaborating. Um, I I didn't see, uh, uh, you know, the chemists versus the traditional practitioners arguing about uh, underlying uh, philosophies. What I saw was really, you know, pragmatic, curious people saying, wow, uh, okay, if... Tell me why you chose those three plants uh, and, and these three plants. Um, um, and one interesting kind of story that came out of it is that, that initially the way that they they extracted they grouped. The, the, these 12 plants into three groups. And initially, the grouping was made according to uh, Tran Kwong Zan's kind of therapeutic idea that you have to give them something that's quite strong in the beginning to help with these withdrawal symptoms. You have to give them some sedatives to help them sleep. And some plants were specifically for that. And then afterwards, there's a long period of recuperation where you have to keep cravings at bay. You have to give them, you know, not as intense a dose. So they created three groupings of, of plants and extracted them. Um, and they found out that, well, actually, this this way of doing it, uh, you know, in clinical kind of uh, 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 practice, when when it was being used in patients, was not as as effective in some ways as the as the kind of brew had been, the the syrup. Um, so then uh, Tran Van Sung says, well. Let's change the the logic. Let's let's group them according to their secondary metabolites, because certain secondary metabolites, which you know, different plants have different kind of constitutions, and the secondary metabolites are one of, in medical terms, some of the most important uh, in in a plant. Um, so Tran Van Sung says, why don't we group these according to uh, the way that we know they can be extracted best? In a best possible way. So, certain classes of secondary metabolites are, are extracted more efficiently using certain methodologies. So, then they regrouped them into three groups again, according to this logic, and found out that they then came up with a, a much more effective, again, uh, testing with, with uh, uh, patients, um, a, a much more effective kind of uh, uh, setup. So, they reverted back to this single Pill rather than having three different pills, you have a single pill, and then you adjust the doses according to which stage of a treatment process you are. So this is, you know, this is a a dialogue, this is a collaboration, um, and I, I wouldn't describe Tran Quang Zhang as colonized. I would describe him as curious, as as somebody who's trying to help patients, and and I think it it, it, it is really to miss the point to to overemphasize the the and and that's not to say that uh, as a as a medicalization as a process which involves te- te- you know technologies bringing in certain uh, forms of industrial techniques is going on for sure for sure it's going on but for me i i i just i i think there's a certain uh, paternalism in the colonization hypothesis which i just couldn't uh, see when i was there there was much more a mutual collaboration and For this reason, I I, I don't want to generalize because I I haven't been in 100 labs. I was in this particular lab. So, you know, in other labs, perhaps the colonization hypothesis makes a lot more sense. Um, And I'll leave that, obviously, to to other uh, ethnographers.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. I'm glad you mentioned I was going to ask you, um, but I guess you just answered that, how typical you thought this particular case study was of um, some sort of broader trend that you might describe, but maybe yeah. you just answer that question.
0: Yeah. Well, I it, it's definitely not um f- fully typical. It's it's uh, it's it, it's it was ra- rather high profile. It had quite a lot of funding and things like this so so in that sense uh, it, it's not typical, but that sense of collaboration, uh, you know, combined with the knowledge that we 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 have about the kind of doctrine of combination as we've called it, you know, they fit together. It, it wasn't something that was jarring with other things that we we knew that were that have been happening in in Vietnam.
1: And and this emphasis on collaboration as an active process also um, brings us to, or might be a a way to bring us to, um, another one of the um, points that um, you and your co-editors are uh, making in this volume, or are articulating, at least in the introduction, um, which is that one of the dichotomies um, that you want to try to use this volume to take apart in addition to this sort of romanticized East-West and the dichotomy of the sort of um, colonial medical encounter as a, you know, powerful versus completely, you know, um, victimized, you know, poles. Yeah. The other dichotomy you talk about is this idea of a kind of pure... Um, southern medicine or a pure Vietnamese medicine that exists out there somewhere that is somehow, you know, uh, changed or made um, uh, less than or, or you know, in, in whatever way we want to um, describe this. But exactly this process that you're talking about in your paper, I think, is a great way um, to show the idea that um, Vietnamese medicine is very much in, in the making as the title, yeah. right?
0: Definitely, and here we really have to highlight uh, again Michelle, Michelle Thompson's, you know, really rigorous and wonderful work that that, that she's done, um, and her, her kind of grasp of, of of this pre-colonial history, which you know really goes, you know, it's a, it's a it's a very long period she's covering in her chapter compared to the rest of us, um, and you know she's really showing us that that again. The, the kind of standard version is that, that uh, Southern medicine is the inferior kind of empiric, empiricists, uh, you know, people uh, just, you know, kind of cooked up in their backyards uh, recipes that people were using in the countryside. And Northern medicine, which is Chinese medicine, is part of a learned philosophy, uh, a, a school, uh, a much richer kind of uh, um, a scholarly tradition behind it. Um, so the idea is that Again, northern medicine, and when when the Chinese came came to what is today known as Vietnam, they brought with them their medicine, and and they kind of uh, just as the colonial French colonials brought with them their medicine and and enlightened the 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 masses. Similar kind of narrative in some places is, is there that northern medicine has influenced southern medicine, but. What Michelle shows is, of course, there's a, a, a back and forth going on. I mean, there's, there's trade routes between the north and the south. And this north-south distinction is not just north-south, uh, uh, you know, China, Vietnam. Within China, there's a north-south, which is a very important distinction. And within Vietnam, there's a north-south. So it, it's better to think of it as, as like almost a, a, a route or a continuum along which different tradings and, and exchanges are going on. Along. And she very convincingly, if you ask me, kind of shows that certainly knowledge of so-called southern medicines, these so-called miraculous medicines of the south, um, was permeating also up north and uh, there are are very clear examples of certain materia medica which are, are very commonly found in the Viet, what is today known as Vietnam, which were also mentioned in in, in certain medical uh, treatises in in China. So of course there's an interaction, and that's part of that that kind of uh, back back and forth that's going on, and that's not to say that that of course there has been an influence from Chinese medicine and Vietnamese medicine. There's no question about that.
1: Mm-hmm. I, absolutely, and I also really liked that chapter. And one of the things that um, one of the many things I think she does really helpfully in that chapter is not just show that. Um, sort of, the, we can't really read back, you know, China and Vietnam in time as if these were stable, coherent geographical entities, yeah. right? In the in the history of this medicine, but also she does this really interesting thing. Um, where she at some at one point in the chapter emphasizes the different local cultures of highland versus lowland medicine, yeah. which is you know which kind of invokes the broader discourse of, kind of zomia and the, and the importance of upland cultures and upland history, and I think that there 's really a lot of room there for people to explore that um, you know as a kind of locality of uh, medical and cultural um, and sort of knowledge production that we don't really have a lot of literature on. I mean, I think that's, I think she's identified there a really nice direction for what I hope will be a lot of future research.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's so much work to be done there. And uh, like, you know, we started this kind of talk Talking about Southeast Asia coming out of the shadow of, of of East Asia, I mean Vietnam is is the link, isn't it? it Vietnam is both East Asia but also Southeast Asia. Um, so you know, I I certainly hope that our our volume in some way can contribute to uh, kind of piquing some curiosities and and getting people kind of more interested in in seeing these particularities because we I mean. I can only attest that that you just learn so much in asking this question of what makes a medicine in a, in a particular context. And these days, it's very convenient to to uh, kind of speak of national medicines because you can travel to certain locations and so forth. But I think anywhere you go, you can you can. I hope helpfully use this idea of the making of medicine to as an analytical strategy really and, and empirical for that matter ethnographic strategy, um, just coming to a place and, and being curious you know how, how, how is this thing unfolding, and what can we learn from that
1: absolutely, and i think that's something I think that both really helpfully brings us to maybe a place where we might sum up and yep, also yep. Um, and also um, I think that 's a, a kind of strategy or the kind of strategy that you 're recommending. For us is also, I think, really helpful, not just for people who are doing ethnographic work in real time right now, but also for historians and for those of us who are doing a kind of historical ethnographic work on on material from the past, right?
0: Yeah, definitely, and there, you know, the, the methodological uh, interactions that I've had, you know, I'm trained as a sociologist currently, but always kind of been working ethnographically, and currently uh, at a department of anthropology. Um, um, my interactions with with uh, Laurence and Michelle, who are both you know, trained as historians, it's just been wonderful. I mean, uh, for me, I I couldn't think of an ethnography that that doesn't do its history. And and I hope, uh, similarly, a lot of historians probably have the the feeling that uh, a lot of interesting history is to be done where you try to kind of uh, uh, get as much ethnographic uh, material that you can, I mean, within the limits of of source sets and so forth. But... uh,
1: Absolutely. I yeah. think somebody once said maybe somewhere, or else I'm misremembering this. I was talking with my students about this yesterday. Um, history is the anthropology of the past and anthropology is the history of the present or something, right? There you go. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somebody once said that, and if not, we just said that. So um, so I, there's, there's obviously so much more um, about this volume and in this volume that we just didn't have a chance to talk about. Are there any pieces in particular um, that you want to uh, sort of particularly highlight um, for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the volume, that stand out for you as particularly surprising or helpful? or
0: somewhat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, a, wow, uh, what a challenge. I mean, I, I think I've mentioned quite a few along the way, and yeah. a, each chapter merits, you know, a, an hour-long chat in itself, but obviously Rob Whitehurst's wonderful kind of uh, recounting of how he um, was involved in returning um, the diaries of uh, Dang Tui Tram uh, to uh, a, 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 who was a uh, a lady who was trained as a, a doctor who died uh, during the, the war against American soldiers uh, while, while kind of uh, treating soldiers and uh, that whole story there is just again gives you such a, a rich insight into the daily life of these things. So, you know, when you're treating soldiers on the front line, you, you know, you're growing a garden of medical plants, not for some ideology that, you know, modern medicine is, is toxic and so forth, because, you know, you're in the field and this is what you have access to. And, and you're just trying your best to, to, to treat people. Um, Sean uh, Malarney's, you know, fantastic uh, kind of historical documentation of how the revolutionary government, uh, Ho Chi Minh's government, in many ways continued these civilizing strategies when it came to you know, hygiene um, uh, you know, uh, strategies to, to, to improve the, the, the hygiene of, uh, of uh, in, especially rural com- communities by uh, invoking germ theory and, and popularizing germ theory. And Huang Bao Chao's uh, you know, really first-hand account of how medicine, uh, traditional medicine, was revived by the government as an active policy. Um, Nguyen Fong Nook's uh, fantastic uh, story of uh, pharma, Trafico, sorry, which is one of the largest herbal medicine producers. And commercialization, is that's the story in the 21st century, without a doubt. And then the last two chapters by um, uh, Cam Suan uh, Nguyen, Jack Shee, and uh, Huang Uitrong. um And Laurence Monet also has one Looking at this idea of Vietnamese diasporas and how they, uh, once they've moved to uh, United Kingdom and Canada respectively, how they kind of invoke um, and and understand relate themselves to their their medical conditions uh, according to uh, both traditional but also. Uh, modern medical, um, uh, both uh, ideas, but also kind of drugs and, and and pharmaceuticals. I I could go on. I, I better stop. <laughs> okay.
1: And diasporic med. I'll just note, like, um, it's really interesting recently how much diasporic medicine is actually emerging as a um, it, certainly in Canada um, as a subfield of history and anthropology of medicine that's getting a lot of um, I think much needed attention right now. It's a really fascinating yeah. field.
0: Yeah, Uh, a final anecdote from Nguyen Phuong Ngoc while while she was interviewing the people at Trafico, this company who've kind of opened their eyes to to the world now. It's not just a a Vietnamese market. They want us, just like Chinese medicine has gone global, they want to go global. And so she was kind of saying that they were laughing, some of the representatives, that they need to change this famous phrase, which is the title of our book, Southern Medicine for Southern People. Tuok Nam Chuan Nguyen Nam. They have to change it to uh, Southern Medicine for global people. <laughs> so I think that's a very, very uh, accurate way of, of, of looking at the state of affairs today.
1: <laughs> Great. So speaking of the state of affairs today, Ayo, what's next for you? What are you working on now?
0: Yeah, well, um, these are these weird kind of career trajectories that, that uh, once I had finished my PhD, I, I uh, was uh, offered a or was uh, fortunate enough to get a position working on uh, the ethics of medical research in China. Um, So I've switched countries and currently have just uh, received a a three-year... a uh, very uh, nice award from the Danish Independent uh, Research Council uh, for a project on uh, reproductive technologies in China. So I'm doing ethnography in a lab again, but this time actually a, a sperm banks lab. So from herb to uh, herbs to gametes, that's that's quite a switch. And from Vietnam to China, so
1: it's oh, wow. quite a switch. Yeah. That's a fascinating project too. Okay, so I'm going to make um, a request in advance that when that book is out, you call me. And we will talk yes, again about for sure, that one. For sure.
0: In a few years, so, well, it took six years for this one, so.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah. hopefully we'll still be, the new book network will still, still exist yes, and be for sure. active. Well, for sure. Ayo, thank you so much um, for talking with us today about this book. It's a really wonderful, very cohesive and very coherent volume, and I hope Um, A lot of people have a chance to read it because um, I I learned a ton. There's a ton um, of wonderful material in here and just a a lot of wonderful sparks of information or inspiration rather um, that I think um, hopefully will spark a lot of future projects for a lot of other scholars who are going to be inspired by this volume. So thank you so much. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.